For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. Today we're going to um, rebroadcast an episode of the American Legislative Exchange Council's podcast. So they are ALEC, is how they're more commonly known. Um, Their podcast is called Across the States. And ALEC as an organization is the largest nonpartisan voluntary membership organization of state legislators dedicated to the principles of limited government, free markets, and federalism. So about one quarter of the state's uh, legislators um, and stakeholders from across the policy spectrum are part of ALEC. Um, And our episode with them today is specifically um, zooming in on how ending the drug war and legalizing drugs is consistent with um, my values as a conservative, which is also the values that ALEC is coming from as well. Um, So enjoy the the show and um, think of someone you can share it with today. Welcome to Across the States, the ALEC podcast focused on state solutions. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. Today I'm sitting down with the founder of End It For Good, a conservative nonprofit offering alternatives to the drug war. Her name is Christina Dent. Christina, thank you so much for calling in to the ALEC podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Yeah, of course. So you actually have um, a very popular TED Talk on um, the topic of alternatives to the drug war. For all of our listeners, we're going to go ahead and link that to um, this podcast in the show notes so you can check that out if you're interested. But how you begin that talk is you actually started, uh, you mentioned kind of your story from growing up, where you were at then with your understanding of the drug war and kind of leading into how you got to your understanding today. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that understanding and where you're at today? Yeah, so I grew up in a very politically conservative home. Uh, a wonderful Christian home. I'm still politically conservative and Christian today. And I never was interested in drugs or drug use. I did not have friends that used drugs in junior high or high school, Um, never used substances, was not interested in them. I went to a Christian liberal arts college and got a degree in Bible. So uh, as you can imagine, there was a wild thing in college. (laughs) Um, Never used drugs. there. still have never used drugs. I don't, I don't drink alcohol. I've never smoked a cigarette. I just, I'm not interested in um, substance use. So really my story is not one of a radically changed lifestyle, but really of a radically changed mind as I began to see that how we handle substances is really all about how we handle people. And I'm very interested in how we handle people. And so uh, that's kind of the beginning of the journey for me was someone who supported the drug war for most of my life until just a couple of years ago, voted for, you know, harsher, tougher uh, penalties and sentences. And um, it really was uh, through some other experiences that I began to rethink that approach and now advocate for alternatives to that approach. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you had many experiences, I'm sure, that helped um, you along this journey or to get to where you are today, as as we all do. But you mentioned in your TED Talk how when you started a foster care family, that was so pivotal for you in this journey. Can you talk to our listeners about that situation. Yeah. So until we became a foster family about five years ago, my thoughts on drugs were, you know, drugs are bad. Drug use is bad. Outlawing drugs is the right thing to do. 
A plus B equals C. I never thought anything else about that um, until we became a foster family. And through about four years of foster care, began to see um, the war on drugs up close for the first time. What does that actually look like in the lives of families um, and communities and children and parents? Um, and through foster care, I met Joanne. Uh, she had struggled with addiction to illegal substances for many years, and her uh, she had not been able to beat her addiction while she was pregnant with her first child. And so he was removed from her custody into foster care when he was born. That's common practice to automatically remove children who have been exposed to drugs in utero. And he was brought to our home straight from the hospital. And I did not know anything about addiction. I just could not fathom how a mother who loved her child could possibly use drugs while she was pregnant. I just had no place for that. I had never been close to addiction before. I didn't have it in my family. And so I really just thought this must be um, a mom who, who doesn't love her child. So um, Beckham came to our house and a week or two after that, I brought him for his first visit with her at the local child welfare office. And I took him out of his, uh, took his car seat out of my van. I had my other three boys with me and turned around in the parking lot. And there is Joanne sprinting across the parking lot towards me with tears streaming. And she just starts covering her baby with kisses while I'm holding his car seat kind of awkwardly. And I just felt a huge wave of suspicion. I thought, surely this is a show. She's just trying to get me to maybe put in a good word with a social worker. This does not fit at all what I think about addiction and moms who would use drugs while they were pregnant. So she had her one hour of visit with him and then she left for inpatient drug treatment. And I brought back him back to my house and began to feel this war beginning in my heart because uh, what I had seen and what I saw over time with Joanne was a mother who deeply loves her son. And what I began to realize um, is that Joanne is a mom like me and she loves her son just as much as I love my three boys. And her addiction is not a lack of love. It's not even, it was not a desire, you know, lack of desire to be free from that addiction. It was a really complex health crisis spiritual crisis, emotional crisis, lots of crisis, um, not a criminal justice crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got really uncomfortable because the more I got to know Joanne, I knew enough about the criminal justice system and what was happening in Mississippi to know we are putting women and men like Joanne in prison every day for this same health crisis. And that really started me wondering, what are we doing? And is there a way that we could handle this differently? Because I think we're doing actually a lot of harm. Are there other alternatives that would be less harmful? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. That you know, it's a health crisis, not a criminal crisis, as as you argue there. It seems to me that there's there's so much trauma from the drug war that there is today, um, especially when you look at it in the lens of your story here with Joanne. You know, for the, for the child and for Joanne herself, and for any other family members perhaps involved. I know you go in depth in the TED Talk about essentially uh, two kinds of harm in the drug war. Can you talk to our listeners about those two kinds? Yeah. So I went on this journey after meeting Joanne to learn what could we be doing differently that would produce more positive outcomes for women like Joanne, for children like Beckham. So I'm not interested in, you know, how can we just not harm people who, you know, just let them use drugs and destroy their life. I'm interested in how can we reduce harm to children, to families, to our communities. 
And what I learned on that journey of researching what we could do differently is that drug harms actually fall into two categories. We we kind of culturally lump them into one. Anything related to drugs that's harmful, we say, well, that's the harm from the drugs. That's what happens with drugs. Yeah. Um, but really, drug harms fall into two categories. One is the harm from the drugs themselves. What can drugs do when you put them into your body? But there's this second category of harm, and that's actually the harm from criminalizing drugs. And that journey of learning has convinced me that the vast majority all harms related to drugs that we experience today are in that second category. They are harms Mm. that come from criminalizing those substances. There is certainly still harm that comes from the substance itself, but the vast majority of harms are either created or exacerbated by criminalizing those substances. So I think about it as kind of a, you know, a pill with two sides, you know, um, like a lot of the pills you can get, you know, there's a red side and a white side. And it's helpful to think about it as, you know, the white side is the harm from drugs and the red side is harm from criminalizing those drugs. And we have had that pill pushed together and we have taken that pill all together, the harm from the drugs and from criminalizing them for 50 to 100 years, depending on which drug you're talking about. Mm. Um, And that's what I really want us to consider is breaking that apart and ending those harms from criminalizing those substances and focus all of our efforts onto the harm from the substances themselves. Yeah. So a lot of people, at least that I've seen, maybe just pundits, maybe more policy decision makers, but I think it's uh, a common thing. You may or may not agree with me on this, that people often argue for the drug war or for pushing back whether it's across the border, whether it's in our local community, because of drug dealers, because of um, the cartels, let's say, if it's crossing from Mexico into um, our southern states. But you had an interesting take on this. How do you think um, the drug war relates to cartels? Do you think the drug war helps diminish cartels or do you think it helps enable the cartels? So the first time that I ever heard somebody ask, you know, kind of pose the question, So, you know, what do you think about, um, you know, legalizing drugs or regulating drugs? The first thing that popped into my mind was, are you insane? Like, (laughs) how could you give cartels the keys to the world? It is so crazy. Among other things, I thought. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, the the second things on my mind were, you call yourself a Christian? You call yourself conservative? What on earth? How How could words even be coming out of these people's mouths? And what I learned was it is criminalization of substances that provides them, um, that pushes them into the underground market, which is why cartels and gangs are being funded by them. So Mm. drug prohibition is not fighting cartel violence. It is not fighting gangs. It is enabling them and funding them by providing this massive amount of revenue every year. Um, We don't know exactly how much revenue that is. Estimates are that the illegal drug the cartels don't disclose their, about, their revenue stream <laughs> what <laughs> right uh, we we could take a guess that it's somewhere around 500 billion dollars a year so think about that we've got 500 billion dollars a year that is only being earned by cartel and gang activity yeah. uh, we don't have that with alcohol and i think that's you know people we have a cultural understanding of that with alcohol um, we think, well, we prohibited it. It was a disaster. You know, Al Capone and all of his uh, minions came in. You know, violence increases. You know, the the market gets really violent. People are fighting over turf. Uh, we ended alcohol prohibition. We don't have that anymore. 
but none of us that are alive today have ever lived in a world without drug prohibition. Mm. That's the only world that we know where gangs and cartels have comparatively a lot of power in some countries basically have taken over uh, the government through bribes or threat or things like that. And that is preventable. That is a choice that we are making to force those substances into a market where they fund um, not just gangs and cartels, but terrorist activity. The vast majority of terrorist organizations are also funded through Mm -hmm. money that they earn on the underground market for um, selling drugs. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I did not know that that last part. I think, you know, thinking through prohibition is a really great lens to to kind of not necessarily break through, but make people look differently or look a second time from a different angle on this issue, right? So looking at alcohol prohibition, um, it increases potency and it increases taboo society around it. And what that ends up doing is people have to hide it more. They have to you know, keep it hidden, which means so to the point of increasing potency, you got to make it smaller, right? It has to be easy, more mm-hmm. easily to hide, more easily to, sh- to ship and transport. So you, from a large scale operation, you're saving on logistics costs from your own personal self. It's easier to, you know, stick a flask in, in your jacket pocket than it is to have a six pack of beer um, in your hands. Mm-hmm. And I think that rings true um, with the drug war today. What, what do you think about that? Absolutely. I think that that um, iron law of prohibition, uh, as it's been called for a couple of decades now, is absolutely true. And it applies to, you know, things like heroin, where we have, you know, heroin is is potent because it has to be smuggled. And anytime you have to smuggle something, you have to get high potency in a really small package. And so we've had that for years. And now we have fentanyl in our street drug supply. The fentanyl lacing of substances is a product of drug prohibition. Mm. It is a result of what happens when you force a market for decades into the underground where they are perpetually encouraged to create more and more potent substances. And so it was cartels that formulated powdered fentanyl. We've Mm. had fentanyl as a prescription um, drug for a long time, but this powdered form of it was created to to uh, be able to cut other substances and make them more potent in smaller packages. I read, read one article that said, you know, it used to be that you had to smuggle a boatload of heroin, and now you can smuggle a suitcase of fentanyl. Mm. And the majority of fentanyl comes in through the postal service. It's not smuggled, you know, over the border or through um, shipments because it's so potent that you don't need very much of it to create many, many, many doses of a substance. And so now in some uh, cities, almost the entire street drug supply is contaminated with fentanyl. And it's really, really potent. It's the the edge of getting high and dying is razor thin. It is extremely dangerous to use substances on the street. Now we have to consider why is that, that they're so dangerous on the street? Um, now they still can be dangerous, certainly regulated, but when you buy them on the street sure. and you buy a bag, you don't have any idea what's in it. I mean, yeah. none. You well, maybe no what real you bought recourse yesterday. either. I mean, it's it's. I'm not right. saying that no. the legal system there's perfect recourse, but at least you know, thinking very simply, if someone uh, lies to me in an advertisement, that's you know recourse I can seek. If someone assaults me or mm-hmm. tells me this is X, but really it's Y. You know, there's recourse in our American um, justice system to deal with those sort of discrepancies. Right. But, you know, in the black market, by its very nature, does not have any sort of um, 
follow-up recourse, I guess is what you could call it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No recourse in the market. So you end up having a, a market that's governed by violence and fear because there is no legal recourse. So you just have to, you know, rule your turf with, you know, guns and violence um, or, you know, far more terrorizing things. Um, but yeah, for the substances too, people don't have any idea what they're using and what got them high yesterday. They could buy another bag from the same person, but it's a slightly different mix and it's, you know, enough to kill them yeah. today. And um, so there was a, there's a mother who lost her um, daughter to a drug overdose in the UK and she um, addressed their government leadership and said, the only difference between medicine and poison is dosage mm. and you can't get dosage correct if you don't know what you're taking. And she's advocating for legal regulation. She lost her child to a drug overdose and realizes now that if the substances had been regulated, for one, her underage daughter would have needed an ID. It would have been harder for her to access those substances. And two, those substances would have been regulated. She wouldn't have been taking something random she bought on the street. She would know how potent it is. She would know the purity of it, just like we do with, you know, alcohol today. We know what's in it. You have that on the label. And like you said, you have legal recourse if there's, you know, faulty advertising. Yeah. Um, but we don't have that. With the street, people, people don't know what they're taking. Yeah. Um, and they're dying you know, far more than they would be if they were taking regulated substances. It's really important to understand our current opioid overdose crisis. When you look into those numbers and you look at the number of people that are dying of opioid overdoses, so 2017, um, there were 47,000 people who died of opioid overdose. Now, what we think from the media is those are all prescriptions, and that's the narrative that we have heard. But if you look into those numbers, CDC numbers, 75% of those people had either heroin or fentanyl in their systems. Oh, we wow. do not have an overdose crisis that is driven by people getting legal prescriptions from doctors. We have an over overdose crisis right now that is being vast majority driven by unregulated substances on the street where people are many times more likely to die using them. Hmm. So... What I really love about how you approach this topic and have consistently approached this topic is from a person-focused perspective. You said it earlier, you know, what really has driven you and, you know, sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth, but Mm -hmm. what I think has really driven you is, you know, your interest in people. And I think you said that at the beginning of the podcast that, Mm -hmm. you know, what's been motivating you is your interest in people generally. And, you know, Alec, things that we really support are individual liberty and you know free enterprise in the state. So I think yeah. there's this great connection here for our listeners and you know for many of the state legislators who are members of ALEC. But what ALEC legislators really love to do is they love to learn from other situations and they love to, you know, learn from that and see how they can create a practical solution for problems that they see in front of them. You know, I think we've talked a lot already about the problems, right? And we've talked about this this awful situation and reality that is today and how it's really not working. Mm-hmm. Is there, you know, like Portugal, for example, what, you know, I know you talked a little bit in depth in your, your TED talk about how they took steps and how we can actually look at Portugal as a use case, I guess would be a term you could call it. Um, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? Because I think that would be really important for them because there is real, almost like a case study on uh, this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Portugal in 2001 uh, took the biggest step that any country has taken over the last hundred years to end their drug war. And they decriminalized drug use 
for all drugs. So it's important to note they did not legalize the market uh, for substances. They're still illegal there to produce and to sell. And so they're still using unregulated substances also there, but they addressed users and said, we're not going to treat you as criminals anymore. We're going to treat you as patients that need help. And so if you are caught with a personal supply of drugs, of any drug, you're given a ticket, but you're not you're not arrested. And your ticket is basically just you go before a panel and they try to help you see uh, that this is not smart. Um, you're making poor life choices here and uh, offer you help. So what Portugal did is they took their drug intervention money and they shifted how they use it. So today in Portugal, along with the decriminalization of drug use, um, they use 90% of their drug intervention money on prevention and treatment and mm. only 10% of it on enforcement. Huh. So they launched tax breaks for businesses that would hire people who were coming out of incarceration or out of treatment. They launched, you know, um, how can we help you get housing? Can we help you find work? Basically, how do we help you build a life that you want to be fully present for? Because they understood that the reason people are using drugs is a uh, self-medication of other things. For a lot of people, that's trauma, um, self-medicating the effects of trauma. For some people, it's just a life that they don't want to be fully present for, for any variety of reasons. And so Portugal took uh, what we know about drug use and said, okay, then how can we help people build that life where they want to stop using substances to numb themselves? Um, now, in the United States, we do the exact opposite. We use only 10% of our drug intervention money on prevention and treatment, and we use 90% of it on enforcement. Mm. So we have to look at now what happened in Portugal. Has it worked for them? And so that's been 19 years now since they have decriminalized drug use. And what they have found is that their injection drug use rate has dropped by half, half less oh, wow. injection drug use in Portugal. Drug addiction has dropped by a third. I think that's really important. Could American families envision a world where one out of three families that currently is experiencing addiction in their family were not? Mm. I mean, that would be unprecedented policy success if we could decrease addiction in that way. Um, their drug-related crime is also down. Uh, prostitution, property crimes, much of that in the United States as well as Portugal is driven by drug-seeking behavior. So as their addiction rate has decreased, those other problematic practices of drug-related crime have also decreased with that. And so Portugal has found that, you know, it's not a perfect solution there. Sure. Um, they also have a far lower overdose rate than we do, but they do not have fentanyl-laced drugs. Their Portugal's mm. drug source on the underground market is different from the United States, okay. and fentanyl has not gotten into their drug supply yet. And so it, it's not comparable um, to, to compare their overdose rate. But knowing what we know about our overdose rate and how much of that is driven by unregulated substances, by heroin and, and fentanyl, we would guess that ours would dramatically decrease, which for people who, like me, are pro-life and can think about, we have people dying every day in this country whose deaths could be prevented if we would legally regulate these substances again. We have thousands of people being killed in street violence. Um, in our own country, as well as in Central and South America, people fleeing violence in countries like Honduras that have been overrun with cartel violence driven by the criminal approach to drugs. I think, uh, so why I'm doing this, so why, why would somebody like me who doesn't want to use drugs and doesn't want other people using drugs 
start a nonprofit and work full time trying to advocate for those those very drugs to be legally regulated. It is because I absolutely believe from from the research that I have done and everything I've learned that ending the criminalization of drugs is actually one of the biggest policy levers that we have in mm. our time to increase uh, the preservation of life to increase opportunity and to decrease harm for people around the world. And that's why I'm interested in it. And that's why I want to invite more people into this conversation to consider uh, whether we can support the legal regulation of substances we don't want people using because it is the least harmful way to handle those substances. Mm. Um, my conscience is clear on that. And I'm, I'm confident that this is um, preserving life. It's something that's really important to me. Um, and something I want to spend part of my life working on. Yeah, I really respect you um, undergoing this endeavor. It's it's very honorable and something I revere you for. Uh, that does bring us a little bit to the end of our segment here today on Across the States. But before we close out, I wanted to give you the opportunity to give our state legislators, who are the majority of our listeners, um, one final lasting piece of advice. I know you've already gone into a lot of different things that have um, been done in Portugal and other places and a lot of issues. But if there's maybe one or two last takeaway items, you really want to make sure our state legislators across the country, you know, listen and understand from this podcast, um, what would you want them to take home? I would tell them, invite them to consider this is not a perfect solution and it is a realistic solution to a world that's broken, a world with broken people in it, a world with substances that can potentially harm us. Um, and the way that we need to be looking at those is not to say what's perfect, what, what kind of perfect solution can we come up with, but what's a realistic solution that could actually really, you know, decrease harm and is in line with our values. So I still believe people are responsible for their drug use, but we are responsible for our response to their drug use and our response to these substances. And I, and I think as for me as a Christian and for someone who's politically conservative and has a high value for the sanctity of life to look at you know, I don't want to just try to help people pick up the pieces of lives that have been destroyed by the drug war. And there are millions and millions of lives around the world every year that are being destroyed by this. Um, that's just not consistent with my values. I want to support policies that are preventing the destruction of life and preventing death. And I think that this is what does that. It's not perfect, but it is, I think, the best solution going forward. And I think um, if we did this, there's a judge in California who is advocating for the same thing. And he says, I think if we legalized substances and regulated them again, we would look back two years from that date in horror at what we had been living with, um, mm. the amount of harm that has been done that we've become accustomed to, but doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and that's what I want people to realize. It doesn't have to be this way. Uh, we're seeing people change their minds all the time as we invite them into this conversation. And that's what we want to see. We want to see that here in my home state of Mississippi. And we want to see that um, across the nation and across the world. Um, the United States has a great deal of influence on drug policy worldwide. Um, and we can end this and we can end it for conservative reasons. Um, and we can end it to save lives. Well, I'm Dan Reynolds, your host of the ALEC podcast across the states, and I've been sitting down with Christina Dent, the founder of End It For Good, a conservative nonprofit offering alternatives to the drug war. Christina, thank you so much for offering your perspective and your ideas um, on the ALEC podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And if you would like to have your ideas featured on ALEC Across the States, please feel free to email acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. This conversation is gaining steam among conservatives across the country, and we're excited to continue to share how we think uh, the legalization of all drugs is the most consistent conservative approach to um, two drugs in a way that gets us more of what we really want, fiscal responsibility, smaller government, uh, personal responsibility, employed citizens, safe communities, strong families, and the preservation of life. Thanks for joining us today. And I'd encourage you to think of one person that you could share this episode with. Um, maybe you have a, a friend who's particularly resistant to rethinking the drug war. Um, and maybe they would be open to uh, hearing something that Alec has produced. And this is a good opportunity to share with them um, an episode that might help them um, to think more of how this is consistent with their deepest values also. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.